Okay. We ready? We're good? Okay, good evening, everyone. Thank you uh, for being here tonight. Good evening. Okay, so uh, we're standing here tonight in the, pretty much in the middle of the nine days that lead up to uh, the ninth of Av, uh, which is the anniversary of the destruction of both the first and the second temple in Jerusalem, as well as uh, other calamities that befell, befell the Jewish people. And we know that so much of Jewish history, when we celebrate, for example, Pesach, Purim, Hanukkah, are celebrating joyous occasions from our history, right? The famous joke goes that most Jewish holidays are the result of Gentiles trying to kill us, and we defeated them, and so we decided to celebrate by eating. So that's the vast majority of our calendar, but there's also a small part of our calendar that is the converse of that. That's the exact opposite of that. There were times in history when the Gentiles tried to destroy us and to kill us, and they were somewhat successful, and we mourn those times, those nine periods in history. And so that's the time period that we're in, is a, is a period of mourning, which is going to culminate on Sunday with the 9th of Av, really on Shabbos. The 9th of Av actually this year falls out on Shabbos, but the rabbis push off a day of mourning from Shabbos to Sunday. Um, of course, we don't want to be sad on Shabbos. And so we're going to talk today about the, this parallel, sadder part of the, uh, of the Jewish calendar as well. Now, Jewish practice is very much affected by history. A lot of what we do is a, either a result of something that happened, like Pesach, like remembering that God took us out of Egypt. Um, and that also applies, of course, to, uh, to some of the ways that we mourn over Jerusalem, whether it's when we acknowledge the destruction of Jerusalem in our, in our davening, in our prayers, um, other times, and it's something that we do, that we do a lot. So, so we're not going to be able to get into too much detail of this uh, period in time. Really, just the first of the three revolts that we're going to talk about, the first one alone is a mul- deserves a multi-part series, but we're going to try to give uh, something of an overview. In order to do that, let's, uh, let's go back a little bit into um, centuries that preceded the destruction of the Second Temple, from all the way to the beginning of the Second Temple's building, up until the point that we're going to try to focus on, just to give us a broad sweep of the time in history that we're, that we're discussing, of, the, uh, of a context. So the Second Temple was built in the year 350 BCE, before the Common Era, the year 350 before the year zero, the second temple is built by Jews who received permission from which empire to build the second temple? Not the, ba- the Babylonians had destroyed the first, but which empire? Not the Romans. Romans aren't on the scene yet. The Persian Empire, right? The Persian Empire, the Persian king uh, Darius uh, gives permission to some uh, Jewish leaders to come from Persia and to build the second temple. Eventually they do. The second temple is not so beautiful. We're told that those who saw the second temple, who had seen the first temple, there was only a 70-year gap in between the two, they broke out in uh, weeping and crying when they saw the second temple. It was not the same level of clear divine presence. It also just wasn't as physically beautiful. But they built the second temple under the leader, under, while they were being controlled, essentially, while they were uh, um, a colony of the Persians. But that didn't last too long, because not too long after that, a world conqueror, one of the greatest in history, some would say the greatest in history, burst onto the world scene. His name was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great emerges from Macedonia, from Greece, and he heads, uh, he heads east from Greece, from uh, southeastern Europe, into Turkey, into Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and he starts pushing back the Persians, right? The famous, uh, the famous myth, the famous story goes that in Turkey, there was a particular knot 
in a place called Gordium, and the legend had it that whoever would, would be able to unravel this knot would conquer the ancient world, and which the Persians had controlled at the time. And the story goes that Alexander the Great comes to this knot, and while everyone's looking at the knot, trying to understand the intricacies of it, he takes his sword and he slices the knot in half, right? Because he's somebody who worked in a completely different framework, the way he thought, the way he, and he had to think that way because his army was a fraction of the size of the Persian army. In fact, uh, one of the, m the most epic battle between him and the Persians was a place called Gaugamela, and there the Romans were outnumbered one to five uh, by the Persians, and Alexander the Great, using brilliant strategy and tactics, was able to defeat the Persians. Now, Alexander the Great has a very unique relationship with, uh, with the Jewish people. Some of you have heard me tell this story uh, before in the past. It's a very unique story. The story appears in the Talmud in Yoma. tells us that Alexander the Great heads south from Turkey, starts going through Lebanon. In Lebanon, there was a walled city on the coast of Lebanon. It's still there today, called Tyre. In, modern, in Hebrew, it's called Tzur, the city of uh, Tzur, a Phoenician city. And they, uh, the, he lays siege to the city, and it's a stronghold of Persian loyalists, unfortunately, and, and he's not able to break... Into the, into the city until a group of people who lived in the region came to Alexander the Great and offered to assist him and they successfully assisted him in defeating this city of Tyre. Who were these people? These were the old enemies of the Jews called the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a group of people who many years earlier had been um, under the rule when, when, um, when uh, Sancheirev, Sennacherib, the king of Ashur, took the ten tribes of Israel and scattered them throughout the ancient world where they're still lost until today, most of them, right? He also took peoples from those places and put them in Israel. One of them was a group of people who were in the land of Israel and they were polytheistic. They believed in multiple gods, but they thought that they should adopt the local religion to appease the local god. And so they converted to Judaism thinking that in doing so they would appease the local gods. They were being attacked by wild animals. And so they wanted to appease the local god. And so they thought of themselves as real Jews. They were in for a surprise when they tried to assist in building the second temple when the other Jews didn't consider them, the Jews who came back from Persia, did not consider them authentic Jews. Why not? Why was there... They, well, no, they, they, I believe they did circumcise themselves, but the whole premise of their conversion was that they still believed in multiple gods. They just happened to think that the local god is the one that they, you have to appease. So their, their conversion was never considered valid, and that was a major source. Of, they, were very, uh, they were very bitter about that for a very long time, and whenever they had the chance to, uh, to, uh, to hurt the, Jew, the Jewish community in the land of Israel, they took that chance, and there are many stories throughout history when they did that. The Samaritans today still exist, very, very small community on Mount Gerizim, um, right outside of the city of Nablus, of Shechem, in the land of Israel. And they're not Palestinian Arabs, and they're not Israeli Jews. There's something in the middle, and they still have ancient Torah scrolls that are thousands of years old, and they still practice a version of Judaism which uh, is very similar to the type of Judaism that was practiced 2,500 years ago. They, they slaughter the Pesach offering, and they, uh, they, ha they write the uh, script. Instead of having the mezuzah on their door, they write it over the doorpost. And they do all kinds of other things. They pronounce Hebrew in a way that's probably more accurate than the way we pronounce it. Um, and it's just a very interesting community which still exists today. There are only several hundred of them. So the Samaritans help Alexander the Great uh, defeat the city of Tyre. And he says, you're my allies. What's my next step? What's my next city that we're attacking together? And they said, attack Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city of Jews that are supporting, per that are supporting Persia. Alexander said, sure, I have no, no reason to doubt you. And in fact... 
um, he marches south to Jerusalem. The Jews in Jerusalem hear about Alexander the Great coming, and the high priest, the Kohen Gadol at the time, was named Shimon HaTzadik, Simon the Just, Simon the Righteous. And Shimon HaTzadik, the Talmud tells us, he walks out of Jerusalem right before the dawn breaks with, with other uh, notable Jews. And as, Alexander, as dawn breaks, Alexander the Great sees this group of Jews coming from Jerusalem, and he's riding his horse, and the Talmud tells us he gets off his horse and bows down to Shimon HaTzadik, the, the high priest. And the Samaritans say, what are you doing? And Alexander said, before I go into battle, I have a dream, and I see this man in my dream. And he, when I see him, I know I'm going to be victorious. Anything he tells me to do, I'll do. And so that was a miracle. It was actually celebrated as a minor holiday back in the day. And, and, and uh, of course, Shimon Atzadik tells Alexander the Great that the Samaritans are wicked, and they were lying to you, and they, get, they got punished. Alexander uh, uh, destroyed their temple on Mount Gerizim and, um, and embraced the Jews as friends and allies, which they were. And so he comes into Jerusalem, and the, the Talmud continues and says that Alexander says, as a sign of my friendship to you, I want to erect a golden statue in the temple of Jerusalem. And uh, Shimon says, as Jews, we are very strongly opposed to having a three-dimensional statue of a person. Um, it's a violation of a biblical prohibition, and uh, we don't want to do that. He said, however, take the money you would have spent on the statue and instead distribute it to needy Torah scholars and Kohanim and priests. And in exchange, the firstborn, any, I'm sorry, any boys that are born this year will be named Alexander as a sign of friendship. And they agree to that arrangement, and that is why until today you will find many, many Jews, including Jews who are, uh, who are from much more insulated communities and have no reason to have a Greek name like Alexander, named Alexander. Very common thing because of that story. Right? That's, the, uh, that's the story of how the Jews and the ancient Greeks had this, uh, uh, in the time, Alexander at least, they had this relationship, but Alexander the Great died, even though he was one of the greatest world conquerors ever. I believe he died at age 32, if I'm not mistaken. He was in his young 30s when he passed away, and uh, that was the end of that. So he managed to, to conquer much of the ancient world, and after he died, as these things go, there was a civil war between his various generals who divided up his empire into different sub-empires. One of those empires was, one of his generals was a man named uh, Seleucus, and the empire that he called is the, Seleuc the Seleucid Empire, which was mostly the region of Syria and into Iraq. Uh, the other major empire uh, in the region, was, he had a general named Ptolemy, and the Ptolemaic Greek Empire was based in Egypt. Of course, the land of Israel is smack in between these two warring empires and fluctuated. At first, it was under Ptolemaic Greek control, under Egyptian Greek control, and then it became under Seleucid Greek control. And during this time, this, the Greek, these various Greek empires, some, some rulers were nicer to the Jews, some were less nice to the Jews. During this time is when the, the, the incident of the Torah being translated out of Hebrew for the first time in history was translated into Greek by 70 Torah scholars. They were the, the uh, Ptolemy, one of the, uh, one, of the, uh, Ptolemy, one of the Egyptian Greek kings, uh, uh, commanded these uh, rabbis to translate the Torah, and miraculously they translated it um, all the same. It was, a, it was a miracle, it was a happy thing, but on the other hand it was sad that for the first time this ancient wisdom which had been preserved in this language is now going to be available to everyone to, to misuse and manipulate as they please. So that was the story. Uh, until, and so it was roughly in the year 200 BCE when the Seleucid Greeks, the Syrian Greeks took over, 
And all this time, the Jews are not independent. They have their temple, they have their own life, but they're, they're under the control of these various warring Greek empires until the year 167. The year 167 BCE, a Seleucid Greek king who was very wicked named Antiochus IV is the first one to not only demand that the Jews pay taxes and not only demand that they show their loyalty to him um, in normal political ways, but also that they give up their own religion and adopt Greek culture. And he demanded it and he enforced it with, uh, with uh, his military. And so Antiochus IV said, Jews are not allowed to keep Shabbos, they're not allowed to keep kosher, they're not allowed to circumcise their children. Right? They're not allowed to, at the time, the, Jew, the way the calendar worked is that they had to look at the moon and then a court would determine if it's a new month. They weren't allowed to do that. And so the entire, our entire way of life was under threat. And now, finally, the Jews, who all this time were loyal citizens and were calm, now that their religious sensibilities were being attacked, they took up arms. And as the Hanukkah story uh, commemorates, of course, we have um, Matisyahu, was a, a Kohen, a priest, and he had, he had five children, five sons. And as the Syrian Greeks' troops came to his town of Modian, and they said, you're a, you're a local elder, you're a leader, sacrifice this pig to this idol. And he said, absolutely not. And he took out a sword and he killed the, uh, the, uh, the Greek soldiers. And his sons joined him and they destroyed the altar and they fled to the hills. And they, they started a guerrilla war against the Syrian Greek army. Amatisio himself dies. His son Yehuda, Yehuda Judah Maccabee, famous general, uh, he's the, at the forefront of the struggle, and battle after battle after battle, they defeat the Syrian Greeks in a bunch of very dramatic battles. Some of them were massive. The Jewish army swells, and they defeat the Greeks in, in different in different places, and which leads us to the 25th of Kislev in the year 164, three years after the revolt breaks out. The 25th of Kislev in the year 164 is when they finally were able to retake the temple, which had been defiled and which, uh, where Greek idols had been placed, and they were able to restart the uh, temple ritual, including lighting the menorah, of course. And so that's the Hanukkah story. Now, of course, we think the Hanukkah story ends right there. It doesn't end there. They lose control of Jerusalem very soon afterwards, and there's a whole bunch of other battles. Yehuda himself gets killed. Bottom line is, by the time full Jewish independence is established, remember, the second temple was built under Persian control, and then it went under Greek control. There was never an independent Jewish state during the second temple era, up until roughly 20 years after the Hanukkah story, when the last surviving brother, Shimon, Simon, uh, the last surviving of the five brothers that launched the Great Revolt, he's the only one that's alive. The other four are killed in battle. He finally establishes some version of an independent state. And... Uh, Shimon State actually is a real, it's a real country. It has its own army, it has its own borders. They expand the borders over time and, uh, and they mint their own coins and there are coins, you can find the coins. Uh, they, they, they get uncovered all the time um, in the land of Israel. And, uh, and that's a story with the Hashmonai dynasty. Yeah. Anybody know a Katie Rothman who's missing a driver's license? No? She's from Spring Valley, New York. She, she was a young lady here earlier. There was. She said her name was Stephanie. I asked her her name. But it kind of looks like this her. With the shul I guess so. you found it there or here? It was on Kittrick's uh, yard man found her right by uh, okay. Idol. Okay. We'll track her down. Idol's house. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Well, thank you.
Okay. No, no, that's fine. So there were eight real Hasmonean monarchs, Hashmonai monarchs. As a result of the Hanukkah miracle, there were eight Hashmonai monarchs. Some of them were very righteous. Earlier on, they were very righteous. And then over time, as power will do, they became corrupted. And a lot of them uh, became actually persecuted, many of the rabbis, and they betrayed the Torah. And uh, the longest, I believe the longest uh, ruling of the Hashmonai kings was a man named uh, um, um, Alexander Yanai, who was a uh, wicked Sadducee. A Sadducee is somebody who believes only in the written Torah, not in the oral Torah, and he, hor- he, he viciously attacked the rabbis, and he eventually dies, and he succeeds. He is succeeded by the second queen ever in Jewish history, uh, the, right, the, second, the only righteous queen ever to rule the Jews, a woman named Shlom Tzion. In Hebrew, she was Shlom Tzion, and in Greek, Salome Alexandra. And Shlom Tzion, the queen, ruled for eight years. It was a beautiful time for the Jewish people. It was a prosperity economically, and uh, religiously things, uh, things uh, flourished, and that was the last really good moment of Jewish independence ever, because immediately after she died is where our story today, which is going to culminate in the destruction of the temple, really starts. And that's why I gave you that entire introduction. So Shalom Tzion, she dies in the year 67 BCE, she passes away. And she has two sons. One son's name is Hyrcanus. The other son is named Aristobulus. And they have, of course, have a civil war. They both want to assert control over the land of Israel. They want to be the next, the ninth Hasmonean king. And they made a terrible error. One of them, unclear which one, there are varying sources. One of them is in Jerusalem, and the other one is outside Jerusalem, laying siege to Jerusalem. And at the time, there was a uh, famous... Greek, uh, Ro- a Roman figure, some of you may be familiar with him uh, from, uh, from, from some of the classics, Pompey. Pompey was uh, called in by these brothers to basically decide which one of them should continue. He was representing the superpower at the time, Rome, said which one of them should assert control over the land of Israel, and they brought him in. Unclear exactly what happened. The first source on this source sheet um, is, a, is a story that occurred right around that time, which I'm going to share with you. It's, it's a Talmudic passage. Not everything there is going to be taken literally, but it provides, it's, it's, it's almost the dawn of this Roman era. And many of you have heard me tell this story before. And it's a passage that appears in Sota on 49a. It appears in other places, and I'll just give you a brief summary. We don't have to get into such great detail. That the kings of the Hasmonean monarchy besieged each other. Hyrcanus was outside of Jerusalem. Aristobulus was inside. And there was an arrangement because every day, twice a day, the carbon tumid, the daily offering, was offered on the temple in the Mizbah. These were Jewish kings. They were Hashmonite kings. They were descendants of Matasiah who launched the Hanukkah uprising. They were Jewish kings. And there was an arrangement. Even though there was a military conflict going on, everybody wanted the daily temple offering to continue. Right? And the story goes unclear where the, where, the, where the Romans are involved in this, whether they were the ones that did this, but the arrangement was is that the Jews would lower down a basket with gold coins off the walls of Jerusalem, and the forces outside, which were probably a combination of, of, uh, of Hyrcanus forces and some Romans, they would send up a sheep to, to offer as a sacrifice. But of course, the point of a siege is to starve the enemy into submission. So this is an unusual arrangement that they had because they allowed food to go into the walls for the purpose of this 
sacrifice. And the uh, story goes that there was an individual there, an elderly individual, who advised someone, unclear if it was the Romans or the Jews, and said, as long as they're sacrificing this daily sacrifice, you're not going to break into Jerusalem. They think God is on their side. You won't succeed. And so the story goes that one day they sent down off the walls of Jerusalem a gold, gold coins in a basket. And instead of sending up a sheep, they sent up a pig up the walls of Jerusalem. And this passage says, Once the pig reached halfway up the wall, it inserted its hooves into the wall, and the land of Israel shuddered. Okay? And that right there, that moment in time, is also right when Pompey asserts Roman control over it, and the, what's interesting about this passage is that, is that in Jewish thought, Rome is a spiritual, or possibly even an actual descendant of Esau, who was Yaakov's brother, right? Yaakov is the ancestor of, of the Jewish people, and Esau was his twin brother, who was the opposite of Yaakov, and Esau is compared specifically to a pig, specifically in, in, uh, in, in the verses, um, to a pig. A pig, of course, is the only animal that has split hose and does not chew its cud. Externally appears to be kosher, internally is not kosher, and that was what Esau was all about. Esau was a, was a person who, who was scheming and, and cheating and, and tricking and tricks others. Um, and so that, this moment in time is when the Romans uh, succeeded in, in, uh, in, in taking control of the land of Israel. Okay. And uh, some of you, may, I've, I've spoken about this in the past, I'll just mention it briefly, is that um, unclear, unclear exactly why, there are theories, but Edgar Allan Poe, who actually wrote a short story called A Tale of Jerusalem, which is a, dra- a dramatization of this story of the pig being pulled up the walls of Jerusalem. It's an interesting story. Okay. Now, so Hyrcanus, remember, this is a civil war between Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. Hyrcanus is chosen as king. Aristobulus um, uh, um, decided to fight him. There was a bloody, bloody wars. Rome decides they need to get involved. They need to send troops on the ground. And uh, they also wanted to take control of the land of Israel because it was strategically a very important place, as we know, uh, for them. And so, remember, we went from Persian control to Greek control, and now and then Hashmonai Jewish control briefly and then they went to Roman to now to Roman control under Roman rule this is uh, in the in the year uh, in the in the year 60 and then onward BCE so under Roman rule Jews were relatively calm there were various outrages per- perpetrated against the Jews Roman various Roman governors uh, looted the gold from the temple from the Basemikish to pay for some of their wars that was an outrage the Romans appointed Herod who was not Jewish to be king of the Jews, almost as a, uh, as a puppet of the Romans. He wasn't actually Jewish. He was an Idumean who had also converted to Judaism in a very, in a very uh, dubious conversion process during the Hashmonai kings. They were not considered Jews. They certainly were not eligible to be kings. Uh, and Herod was an extremely wicked, crazy person who uh, was uh, led a very bloody rule. He killed his own wife. He killed all the descendants of the Hashmonai kings. He um, and he was also had very grandiose kind of visions. He built uh, beautiful palaces. He built uh, Masada, the palace on top of Masada. He built. He built the uh, Herodium. Is a also a, uh, a, a monument to to him. Possibly, he's possibly buried there. It's a big debate. Where is Herod buried? Nobody knows. Uh, Caesarea, Caesarea, a lot of major ambitious building projects. And of course, the most ambitious of all, the most beautiful, was considered one of the most beautiful buildings of ancient time, was the Beis Amikdash itself, the second temple, which says those, he who did not see Herod's 
Herod's uh, renovation of the second base of Mikdash has never seen a beautiful building in his life. And the Gemara describes what it was like. There was, it was a combination of, blue, of, of mar- white and blue marbles and the way it offset the, uh, the way it looked and, 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 uh, and it's the way it was built. I mean, all we can see today is the outer retaining wall, which is the western wall, the western wall um, in Jerusalem, which has the, the signature frames, the Herodian frames. You could see there's these chiseled frames on these massive blocks is the outer retaining wall of the temple. But it was apparently an extremely impressive building. But most of what he did was, uh, he was mostly um, extremely wicked. And actually, as he died, he did something, right before he died, he actually placed an eagle, a, uh, a, a um, chiseled eagle, which was a, uh, it was a pagan Roman symbol, in the temple, knowing that the Jews who were very sensitive to this thing would physically go and pull it down, and he used that as a pretext to massacre many, many great rabbis and their students. And so, during this time, it was well known that the Jewish people were, were, are willing to live under foreign yoke, but the moment their religious sensibilities are offended, they will go, they will go and fight. And that's what slowly starts happening. Uh, eventually, Herod's family is so wicked that the Jews request that instead of having, instead of having a quote-unquote Jewish king, Herod's descendants, that they just wanted the standard Syrian, uh, the Sir- Roman Syrian uh, governor to... Um, to be responsible for them, and then, and that's what happened. Uh, one of the more famous ones was Pontius Pilate, and there were others as well. Some of them were better, some of them were worse. They were tasked with collecting taxes, which is always not popular, and if they couldn't raise enough uh, tax money, they would take it by force, and sometimes they would enrich themselves, and then they would force the Jews to give them more money, and so the Jewish community was very impoverished during this time, and they had a very, very hard time, very hard time. Uh, it, moving on in the year, uh, now we're all in the common era here. Okay, so in the year thirty, for the year forty, there was another Roman emperor that demanded a statue be put up of him in Jerusalem, and he insisted on it. The local Roman governor knew what would happen if he would do that. They knew the Jews would take up arms, and they didn't want to face them. The Jews were known to be very, very strong warriors at the time, and thankfully that emperor died. Caligula died right before uh, he was. He basically said to the local governor, he said, "Commit suicide if you're not going to listen to me and do this." And the local governor knew that he couldn't; he didn't have a choice there, and he and he and he died. So the great revolt breaks out in the year sixty-six. That's when this uh, revolt breaks out. And what caused it? So it seems like there were many decades of built-up, pent-up frustration that the Jews had. First of all, with the taxes issue. Second of all, with local Gentiles assisted by the Romans who were not sensitive to to their needs. There was a, there was a uh, dispute over the city of Caesarea, Caesarea, who it belonged to, the Gentiles or the Jews, and the Romans decided it belonged to the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles, uh, the Gentiles attacked the Jews, the Jews fought back, and Florus, who was, the, who was the, the, uh, uh, the procurator, the local governor, he demanded that the Jews pay him money. The Jews mocked him. The Jews mocked him. He heard that there were Jews in Jerusalem actually passing around uh, collection baskets to raise money for him as if he was poor, and he felt that that was an insult to, to his, to his uh, position. And so he comes to Jerusalem, and he, he attacked the, uh, one of the markets in Jerusalem and killed 3,600 people and tries to force his way into the temple itself to take the temple treasures. And as you can imagine what Jerusalem looks like today, very narrow roads, not the best place to navigate a lot of soldiers. The Jews physically blocked them blocked the soldiers, attacked them from above, and didn't allow 
this Roman army into the temple compound and drove them out. And that's when a revolt was really launched. They launched an all-out revolt against, uh, against the Romans at this time. And, that's, uh, and what, what happened next put into motion a series of tragedies which would completely change Judaism as we know it. Keep in mind, Judaism we know today is everything is very legislated in terms of we, have bo- we turn to a, a body of law. The Mishnah is only written in the year 180. This is the year 66. The Mishnah was not written. Talmud was certainly not written. Everything was oral at this time. And, um, and so everything is going to change as a result. Now we're taught that the, that the second temple was destroyed as a result of baseless hatred. Jews who could not get along with each other. And that's true. Uh, that, that is true. But we think of that often as it's almost like a, you know, the sin caught has a, as a reaction, right? A person who uh, does something, person steals, so that can have a, that can have a reaction, in, a geopolitical reaction. That might be true, but it's also, there also was a direct link between the fact that Jews couldn't get along and the fact that the Jews eventually lost this major war with the Romans. And that was, and we're going to see it very, very, very clearly. So I want, what I want to show you, because it's much more efficient than me uh, verbally explaining it to you, I'm going to show you a quick video, which, um, that's actually not so quick, it's like 12 minutes, I believe, which um, will give you a very good summary of what the, um, the beginning of the revolt looked like. And then we'll pause, and then I'll continue ta- saying it verbally, because we're going to try to cover a lot of ground very quickly. Let me see if this is too loud. This is produced. Oh, one second. What's with our volume thing? Um, it's this uh, company called Invicta. It's, this is only part of a documentary. It's just a piece of it, um, which I'm going to turn the volume on, and I think you'll get a good picture of of what happened. Yeah. Sorry about that. Starting in April of 70 AD and lasting nearly five months, the battle would be a brutal, 
no-holds-barred brawl fought over every inch of the city. At stake was the success of the Great Revolt in Judea and the survival of the Jewish people. Roman involvement in Judea first began in 63 BC when Pompey the Great was drawn into a Jewish civil war and eventually seized Jerusalem. However, the region saw much turbulence during the final years of the Republic and was taken over by the Parthians before legions returned to install the puppet King Herod. Eventually, a series of procurators oversaw Judea, but these largely lacked the competency or military power to impose order. Roman authority was highly dependent on local elites who themselves often lacked the confidence or respect of the Jewish people. On top of this, the population of Judea was divided across lines of class, ethnic, and religious divisions. As a result, the region was highly unstable. Revolutions seemed perpetually around the corner. In May of 66 AD, rioting amongst the people was met by the heavy-handed overreaction of the Roman procurator Florus, who only further incensed the situation by plundering southwest Jerusalem and killing 3,600 people. As the situation escalated, reinforcements soon arrived from Caesarea, only to be driven out by a rebellion that now spread to the entire region. Jerusalem was taken by Jewish rebels, while Roman strongholds were eliminated in Judea and Perea. Roman efforts to combat the uprising were led by Vespasian and his son Titus, under orders from the Emperor Nero. The campaign season of 67 AD saw Vespasian advance south from Antioch and focus his efforts on subduing Galilee. Field battles were virtually unheard of, given the huge advantage the Romans held, and most of the fighting was concentrated around fortifications. This resulted in particularly brutal treatment of any populations which did not submit immediately. Rome often acted particularly strict to make a point. During the 68 AD offensive in Judea, for instance, cities downstream of the Roman army learned of their approach not by messengers, but by the arrival of bodies floating down the Jordan River. The campaign ground to a halt with the news of Nero's death. The anarchy that followed was known as the Year of Four Emperors, and included a bid for power by Vespasian on July 1st, 69 AD. By the summer of 70 AD, he had come out the victor and set sail for Rome to claim his prize. Titus was left in command of the Judean campaign with instructions to put an end to the Jewish uprising. This, of course, meant the long-delayed assault on Jerusalem, home to the rebel leaders and the heart of the resistance. Titus began the Jerusalem campaign in the spring of 70 AD. His army of four legions was assembled in Alexandria and marched north to Caesarea along the shoreline. Supporting his force were 23 cohorts of auxiliary infantry, eight allies of cavalry, and numerous detachments of local troops provided by the region's client rulers. Historical records seem to claim that this force numbered around 60,000 men. These estimates imply that the core legionary troops made up around 35% of the army, the auxiliary troops about 32%, and the remaining local forces about 33%. Such a high proportion of local troops does raise some doubts on the accuracy of our sources. However, we may speculate that local rulers were eager to donate men to the war effort in a political bid to secure Rome's goodwill amidst a bloody revolt. The Roman commanders themselves may also have been eager to have additional troops at their side. While the local forces were surely not as reliable as the crack legionaries, they could take on many responsibilities of the army and thus free up the elite troops to do what they did best. This would be especially important in the upcoming siege of a city as large and well-fortified as Jerusalem. 
the Roman forces approached Jerusalem in separate marching columns due to the security and supply constraints of the Judean hill country. Titus led both the 12th and 15th legions by the most direct road, while the 5th Macedonica approached via Emmaus and the 10th Fratensis approached via Jericho. On April 23rd, the lead units of the 12th and 15th legions arrived on the hills to the north of the city. That night, the 5th Macedonica arrived, and by morning, the rest of the army entered the battlefield. Before them lay the great city with gleaming temples and stout battlements. The city of Jerusalem is surrounded on three sides by steep ravines. To the east lies the Kidron Valley, to the west the Gihon Valley, and sweeping around the south is the Hinnom Valley. A series of hills surround the area, including the famed Mount of Olives to the east. Ancient Jerusalem itself was built atop several key topographic features. The city incorporated two spurs of land with the Terebane Valley in between. Atop the eastern spur stood the Temple Mount and the Antonia Fortress. The heights of the western spur were occupied by the elites who had built the upper city during the Ashmonian and Rhodian periods. In the middle of these two areas sprawled the more ancient and crowded lower city, which held most of the population. Both the upper and lower cities were enclosed by a wall, which was anchored on the flank by the massive fortifications around the Temple Mount. Inevitably, the population outgrew its bounds, and the second city was developed north of the first wall. This exposed position was soon surrounded by a second wall, which ran from the Antonia in the east to the Genoth Gate in the west. By the first century AD, yet another suburb had sprung up to the north known as the New City. Once again, expansion necessitated fortifications, and in 41 AD, Herod Agrippa commissioned the construction of the Third Wall. This was an ambitious project with massive stone blocks meant to enclose a large area. It seems that the scale of the defensive works raised some suspicion amongst the Romans who forced their client king to abandon the project before its completion. Over the course of the Jewish revolt, however, the people of Jerusalem managed to put the finishing touches on their third layer of battlements. By the time the legions arrived outside Jerusalem, the walls had been raised an additional nine meters and a series of square towers were built projecting outwards. The combination of tough terrain and stout walls made for a formidable three-layered defensive network. Additionally, the maze of narrow streets between the fortifications could be easily blockaded, while numerous underground water and sewage passages meant that defenders could emerge from any direction for a surprise attack on intruders. Bunkered within this massive, fortified city was a garrison of approximately 20,000 Jewish troops. However, these were not professional forces. Rather, they were a motley assortment of militiamen, refugees, and zealots. This composition is a reflection of the thoroughly fractured nature of the Jewish resistance. Since the outbreak of the revolt, an effective, centralized government had failed to take form, and the resistance suffered from a chronic failure to synergize its various factions. Jerusalem had been divided along party lines and was tearing itself apart in bloody political infighting right up until the arrival of Roman forces. The principal leaders were Simon Gioras, who laid claim to the upper city, and John of Gishala, who was based out of the Temple Mount. Simon led the larger of the two forces, which included 10,000 men under 50 officers and 6,000 allied Edomaeans under eight commanders. These troops garrisoned the first wall from the Kidron all the way to the Palace of the Kings. 
On the other side of the city, John had an armed following of around 6,000 men under 20 officers and was joined by Eleazar with his 2,400 zealots. These forces held the Temple Mount along with the surrounding neighborhoods including the Ophel and the Tyropanian Valley. Traditional Jewish fighters were lightly armed and armored. They fought at range with slings, bows, and javelins before closing in with spears, swords, and clubs. While agile and determined, they often stood no chance in a straight-up engagement against Roman forces, especially heavy cavalry. However, the Jews in Jerusalem were much better prepared than was typical. They had been amassing equipment from Jewish workshops, Herodian armories, arms dealers, deserters, and defeated enemies. A substantial amount of gear had been gathered from the defeated Romans at Beth Haram, including an array of artillery pieces. In addition, the confused mess of siege warfare would negate many of the advantages a Roman force would enjoy in field battle. Lastly, it must be said that the morale of the defenders was strengthened by the inevitable survival instincts that took hold when a city resolved to fight or die. While considering the armies is important, we would do well to remember that sieges are battles of attrition. As such, it is necessary to ask about the food and water supplies. Fresh water, at least, was not of immediate concern, owing to the presence of numerous cisterns around the city, as well as several massive pools which trapped rainwater. Food, on the other hand, was in short supply. During the infighting that preceded the siege, many of the grain stores had been raided or destroyed by opposing parties. In addition, the already huge population of Jerusalem had swelled to dangerous levels in recent weeks with the arrival of pilgrims celebrating Passover. The non-combatant populace far outnumbered the armed defenders and imposed severe limitations on the length supplies could last. Once the Romans closed in on Jerusalem, the countdown began. The Roman army had undergone a long march to reach Jerusalem. Titus recognized that his men were exhausted and ordered that they construct preliminary camps out of range of the city. The 12th and 15th legions who had arrived from the northeast began to set up a kilometer away, atop Mount Scopus, with another camp planned for the 5th Macedonica, 550 meters further back. As the legions moved into place, Titus rode ahead to personally survey the defenses. On the morning of April 23rd, he set off with 600 horsemen, following the road that led to the main gate of the third wall. However, the terrain was uneven and cluttered with gardens, olive groves, hedges, fences, walls, and stone structures which had been knocked down by the defenders. In other words, he walked into a maze of obstacles. All of a sudden, Jewish forces burst out of the gate and swarmed the Roman column, cutting it in half. Cavalry men in the rear bolted out into the open country they had come from. Meanwhile, Titus and his escorts were left behind. The general had neglected to wear his helmet or breastplate for the expedition, but nonetheless drew his sword and led a charge to break out. According to Josephus, he, quote, diverted those perpetually with his sword that came on his side, overturned many of those that directly met him, and made his horse ride over those that were overthrown, end quote. The encounter was a close call, but ultimately the Romans were able to cut their way through, though they lost several men and left many injured. Titus was likely shaken by the event and eager to get the siege underway. He ordered the 10th Fratensis to move even closer and began constructing entrenchments atop the Mount of Olives. However, the Jews were emboldened by their near success and decided to follow up 
with a massive assault. Sorties poured out of the eastern and southern gateways, their sights set on the working legionaries. Fighters streamed across the Kidron Valley and descended upon the half-built camp of the 10th Fertensis. The Romans were caught completely off guard. Jewish troops started cutting down their disorganized opponents, while more reinforcements rushed out from the city to complete the route. Titus attacked the flank with his bodyguard, which was enough to force the mob back down the ravine. The 10th Fertensis resumed work, only to come under a second assault from Jews who had been steadily bringing in more and more men. This ferocious attack overwhelmed the Roman force on the low ground. Many of the soldiers fled for the heights, while Titus and a band of troops attempted to hold the line. Soon after, the legionaries regrouped and countercharged down the hill, driving the Jews back once more. In the ensuing lull, the camp fortifications were finally completed. This secured the Roman fort position, but left everyone with a reminder that the strength of the Jewish defense had been dangerously underestimated. In response, Titus now took precautions against further counterattacks. He posted cavalry divisions to deflect attacks and ordered that the ground between the Roman camps and the walls be cleared of all obstructions. This meant cutting down trees, flattening hedges, filling in ditches, and destroying rock projections. This had the dual purpose of removing any cover for Jewish sorties, as well as preparing the ground for siege works. The Roman army had effectively rolled up its sleeves. It was time to get to work. Okay, that was just to slay the ground war. Whoops. Okay, how do I get out of here? Excuse me. Okay, so this jumped ahead a little bit. I just want to backtrack for a moment and then we will, uh, tell, I'll tell you what happens after this. So a couple things happen here. First of all, who's leading the Roman army on the actual siege of Jerusalem? Titus. Remember we said who was, really, who was sent really to put down the revolt? It was Vespasian. So the campaign in the Galilee and all around Jerusalem and until, they, until the actual siege of Jerusalem was Vespasian. So what happened? I just want to tell you two, two quick anecdotes. So first of all, there's an individual that keeps on getting mentioned in this video. And he's the real source for how we know anything about this time period of history. Josephus. Who was Josephus? I'll tell you briefly. <coughs> Yosef ben Matetiahu was a Jew who was appointed to as the commander of the Jewish revolt in the Galilee. Okay, at the time, by the time the, the, the siege really started going under, into effect, as we saw here, it was mostly these, these zealot groups that were controlling Jerusalem. But really at the beginning of the revolt, it was a much more moderate, mainstream group of government that, that authorized the revolt. There was an individual named Hanan ben Hanan who was the political leader. And they pushed the more, uh, the more violent and radical zealot groups out, and they are the ones that send Josephus to the north. And when Vespasian first came to the north, Josephus organized the defense of these communities. And some of the more famous cities that held out against the Romans was, one of them was Gamla, which is in the Golan Heights. There's a very steep uh, mountain, uh, which kind of looks like a camel. That's why it's called Gamla. And there there was stiff, um, resistance to the Romans, and there was a city where Josephus himself was, 
and that was called in Hebrew Yodfat or Jodapata in English. And Yodfat, what happened was, is that they held out for a couple months against the against Vespasian. Eventually, Vespasian's army took over, uh, to, got into the city, killed thousands and thousands of people, and Josephus himself, the commander, managed to hide in a cistern underground in a water cistern with 40 of his men and the Romans cornered him and there was actually a Roman soldier uh, named named it'll come to me in a moment I forget his name who had been a friend of Josephus from back when Josephus lived in Jerusalem who who the Romans took uh, tasked him with convincing Josephus to come out they had tremendous respect for Josephus's bravery and Josephus wanted to surrender to the Romans because he's because he was from a more moderate more rational faction that said, once you're losing, you may as well surrender and live. And the men that were with him said, absolutely not. If you try to surrender, we're going to kill you. We're going to stay here and fight till the bitter end. And if we have to, we'll commit suicide. And so Josephus, by his own account, Josephus, uh, Josephus writes, uh, was the, the person who survived and wrote history. But what he did next is a uh, he was apparently a bright mathematician and he figured out a mathematical it's, it's called the Josephus problem and apparently what he did was is he lined up all of his men he lined up 40 men in a circle and he said every third man that I count to is going to kill the next person who's the third so number three kills number six right number nine kills number 12 etc and we keep on going until we're all dead and he apparently knew that him and the weakest person were going to be the last two survivors of this suicide. And, and so he survived, and he managed to actually convince the other person that was with him also not to, not to kill him. And he surrendered to the Romans. He was the only one. The rest of them had killed themselves. They, he said, you can't commit suicide, but you should at, least, at the very least kill each other. And he joined the Roman side, essentially. He's viewed in Jewish history as a traitor to the Jews. Hard to know, very complicated personality. But he was with the Romans writing down in great detail exactly what happens. His own parents were in Jerusalem while he was outside of Jerusalem screaming to the Jews in Jerusalem, you know, I used to fight alongside of you. I'm, t- I'm begging you, surrender, to save all these lives. And, of course, they didn't listen to him because by that time Jerusalem had been taken over by the Zealots. So that was Josephus who, who uh, joined the Roman side. He was a historian. He wrote a very thorough history of the Jews. What else happened? So how did Vespasian, why did Vespasian leave? So as we saw in the video, there was a, uh, a fight over, Nero dies, there's a fight over who should be the next emperor. According to Jewish tradition, the way he finds out, this is a story that's in the Gemara, and it says, uh, it's in this uh, source sheet. The story goes that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was a great scholar and rabbi who lived in Jerusalem. He wanted to negotiate with the Romans to work something out. He manages it. He can't get out. His nephew, his sister's son, is one of the leaders of these zealots that are preventing the Jews from leaving Jerusalem, that are burning storehouses of food to force the residents of Jerusalem to fight. And he convinces his nephew to scheme with him to get, to, to get him out of Jerusalem. And what they do is, is that he pretends to die. They put him in a coffin. His students carry him out of the city walls. And he goes to Vespasian and says, Peace be upon you, Emperor. Vespasian says... I should kill you for two reasons. Number one is you can't call me the emperor. I'm not the emperor. Number two is if I am the emperor, why'd you wait this long? And then at that moment, a, uh, some kind of messenger comes and says, Nero has died. I think his successor had died. Right? It was the year of the four emperors. And the Roman Senate wants you to be the new, the new king. And so Rabbi Yochanan Menzaka says, I wish I could have come earlier, but they didn't, let me, they didn't let me out of the city. And so 
uh, Vespasian says to Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai, I'm leaving and I'm headed back to Rome, but I'm, I'll grant you anything you ask for. And Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai could have, he knew he shouldn't, couldn't ask for Jerusalem after all the trouble that the Jews in Jerusalem had given the Romans. He asked for several things, but one of them, most important, was he said, give me Yavne and the scholars of Yavne. Give me the, the, allow the academy of Torah learning that's in the city of Yavne near Ashdod to flourish and to continue uh, without being persecuted by the Romans because he saw that the Jews were going to be leaving Jerusalem. They're not going to have a temple. They're not going to have any center of gravity for their religion anymore, a physical place, but they needed the Torah to flourish. And that isn't, and in fact, uh, Vespasian granted him that wish. There's a story, as I may have told you also, there's a story of, about um, Eli uh, uh, Wiesel uh, said, apparently he once asked Yitzchak Rabin, he said, what is your what is your 20-year plan for the Jewish people? And uh, Yitzhak Rabin said, 20-year plan? He said, I don't even know what I'm doing next week. You know, how am I supposed to have a plan for 20 years from now? He, so he said back to him, he said, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was in a very difficult place, but he created a 2,000-year plan for the Jewish people. He knew, he knew that he had to create a strategy for Jewish survival that would last for, for a much longer time than 20 years. So Jewish leaders are expected to be looking into the distance and figuring out um, how, to, uh, how, to, how to deal with those challenges. So that's, what, that's how Vespasian left, and of course his son Titus, Titus, uh, took over. In this source sheet, I just want to, I'm not supposed to gaze at the face of a wicked man, says the Talmud, but uh, this, hey, this is a, uh, an actual coin. Uh, this is Vespasian, Vespasian's face, right here. Uh, the one where the uh, obverse, the other side of the coin is like a palm tree, and uh, you can actually read the Latin. It says, on the left it says Judea, on the right it says Capta. Judea has been captured. This was a coin minted by the Roman Empire of Vespasian's face, who was the emperor, and, and, uh, uh, and uh, celebrating the fact that they had succeeded in capturing Jerusalem because it was a long, bloody, extremely difficult, um, uh, extremely difficult thing. And on the next page you can actually see a Roman coin of Titus, of Titus. Titus as well. And there also, on the obverse of the, the, of the coin, you see a Jew with a Roman soldier uh, over him, over him as well. So these were actual people. This stuff actually happened, and and um, the Jews exacted a extracted a very very bloody, uh, very very bloody, um, um, uh, um, you know, very very um, strong, very strong attacks against the against the Romans. So what else can I tell you about this? Uh, okay, so that so now let's move um, into the. So, after the story of the um, of the of Titus starting the siege, there are these warring factions. The moderates get pushed out and killed. Hanan ben Hanan is killed. I'm going to uh, to um, pick up steam right here so we can basically summarize more. And um, in fact, the zealots, the way the zealots were able to push out the the way the zealots were able to push out the moderates is that they brought in 20,000 Idumeans, non-Jewish soldiers, to join them, and they joined them and they helped to defeat the the more moderate sources more moderate Jewish forces, and then, of course, as we know, they burnt the storehouses in order to force people to fight, and otherwise they could have really lasted for a very, very long time. And as the video alluded to, uh, Titus allowed, the, the, the siege only re- didn't really start. At the beginning, it was much lighter, and so Jews who were making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Pesach that year, the siege kind of started earlier in, the, in January, February, but Pesach time, Jews were able to go into Jerusalem but then right before the holiday started is when the siege really started. So you had hundreds of thousands of people who had left their homes to come for an eight-day holiday to Jerusalem who didn't bring 
long-term uh, equipment with them or you know, food or whatever else. And on top of everybody else in Jerusalem, they had to deal with the fact there were now hundreds of thousands of ill-equipped people who got stuck there during the, uh, during the uh, Pesach pilgrimage. And of course, the ninth of Ovid in the summer, several months later, is when the temple is eventually breached. Yeah? Um, so, Asara mm-hmm. that that's a first. No, that's a first temple. Uh, yeah, it's not a second. That's a good question, though. Very, m- most people uh, don't make that distinction. The 17th of Thomas is related to the second temple, and 9th of Av is related to both. But the, the 10th of Tevis is a first temple um, issue. Uh, famous, uh, fan- and, and so it was a very, very bloody. When the Romans eventually made their way in, it was street by street. They had multiple walls to get through. Tens of thousands of Romans were killed. Many, many Jews were killed. There was, every time there was a lull in the fighting, the Jews were fighting with each other. This is the baseless hatred. And eventually the Romans were able to, to, um, to destroy the temple, as we know. The most famous, uh, almost a still photo of this uh, tragedy is the Arch of Titus. The Arch of Titus. Titus um, uh, is an arch that exists in Rome today. Titus, Titus, uh, has a victory march in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, of, of, of Jews that he had taken captive. And it was a major event in Roman history that they were able to finally put them down. This arch can be seen in Rome today. It shows Jewish captives carrying off the vessels of the, of the temple into to Rome. Where are they today? That's the great mystery. Nobody really knows Vatican? where they are. If they're in the Vatican, if they're lost, yeah. Uh, something interesting about the Arch of Titus mm-hmm. is that if you go today, See the Arch of Titus, which you can see. Sure. Uh, you'll notice that the Jewish Brigade of World War II, which fought with the British, oh, uh, dug into the, the, the Arch on the Royal There you go. <laughs> it's true. Right. But. Yes, very good. Yes, yeah, so that's a, a very interesting uh, contemporary controversy. If you look at this picture, you see the menorah. Um, the menorah from the Arch of Titus is the tradition. If you're going to draw a menorah, it's going to look like this. In fact, the seal of the state of Israel is this menorah with two olive branches on either side. That's the seal of the state of Israel. Now, when the state of Israel was deciding what to use as their seal, and by the way, why did they choose that imagery? Because the prophet Zechariah, there's, uh, there's a prophecy which we read on Hanukkah. The prophet Zechariah saw a menorah with two olive branches, and he said, to, this is a message from God, that not through might or through valor do we win in battle, but through, through the hands of God, right? Through the hands of Hashem, that's the imagery. But when they were deciding to use this menorah for the seal, the chief rabbi of the time, Rabbi, rabbi Yitzchak Herzog, Rabbi Isaac Herzog, by the way, whose grandson is taking over as the chairman of the Jewish Agency for Israel, uh, whose name is Isaac Herzog as well, head of the uh, Labor Party, former head of the Labor Party. Um, Rabbi Herzog was opposed to using this menorah. Why, as you alluded to? Because Jewish tradition teaches that the menorah in the temple had three, it was three legs, had three legs. It did not have a base that looked like this. Okay, that's number one. Number two is if you look very closely, you can't see it on this, uh, on this uh, low definition photo is that in the, on the actual Arch of Titus, you can make out pagan Roman carvings on the base of the menorah, including a dragon. And there's no considering the, the, how, how averse Jews are to etchings and carvings, especially of pagan imagery, there's no chance in the world that the, that the menorah from the temple had such carvings on its base. So Rabbi Herzog said that it must be that somehow in transit the base broke off and the Romans put on another base which had pagan imagery and he said that it's a disgrace for this to be used as the symbol of the state of Israel because it represents 
it represents the opposite of what the state of Israel stands for. It represents Jew, Jews being driven out of Jerusalem um, and into um, and and actually the base being being manipulated as well. So that's uh, that's a uh, that's a whole conversation of what what did it actually look like. So let me tell you um, where I was hoping to finish uh, up uh, quicker. I'm just going to give you very briefly tell you what happened after the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple takes place in the year 70. There were several holdouts afterwards. Masada, the most famous one, was finally taken in the year 72. In Masada, there was a group of very extreme zealots who all committed suicide, with a few exceptions, 900 plus people, who all committed suicide rather than be captured by the Romans. Big debate um, whether what they did was right or not. There's no mention of what happened at Masada anywhere in traditional Jewish sources. Some say it's because the rabbis were very uncomfortable with what they did. At that point, Jews get scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Many, many, many were killed. According to Josephus, over a million people were killed in the siege of Jerusalem alone. Whether he's exaggerating or not, it was still a lot. Josephus himself goes to Rome and lives in close proximity to Titus. Um, he becomes part of the... Uh, he lives as a Jew in Rome, as many, many Jews did. And um, you would think that after a very long four-plus-year revolt, really six-year revolt, Jews would be done. But in fact, in the year 115, uh, there was a Roman emperor uh, named Trajan, and in the year 115, there was a vicious revolt by the Jews against the Romans, which we know very little about, you know, almost nothing about. What we do know is that Jewish communities around the world, not even in Israel, around the world, in Alexandria and Egypt, in Libya, in Cyprus, and in other places, all rose up while the, while the Roman army was fighting the Parthians in the east, and they completely decimated entire regions of the Roman Empire, killing literally hundreds of thousands. According to Roman historical sources, hundreds of thousands of Romans were killed in these places. Cyprus, entire, almost the entire Cyprus was wiped out. Literally hundreds of thousands of victims, and the Jews had simultaneously risen up. The Roman army came back just in time to basically retrieve their empire, but the Jews were considered a very, very strong threat to them. And they almost succeeded in, in literally taking over the empire. That was the Quitos War, because there was a Roman, there was a Roman uh, a governor who managed to put it, put it down, named, whose name was Quitos, or Quietus, and he put, he put that down. That was the least known of the great three revolts. That was, only, that was in the year 115, which is only 45 years after the destruction of the temple. And then in the year 132, which is 60 years roughly after the destruction of the temple, was an even greater revolt than the Great Revolt and the First Revolt, and that was the Bar Kokhva Revolt. The Bar Kokhva Revolt um, was back in the land of Israel primarily, and there was an individual named Shimon Bar Kokhva who succeeded in briefly creating an independent Jewish state of some kind, and he was such a f formidable foe to the Romans that the Romans actually um, had to recall some of their legions from as far away as Britain, to come to Judea to fight the Jews. And I believe it was a, a quarter of the entire Roman army um, was at one point fight, trying to fight. Entire, entire legions of the Roman army were wiped out by Jews during that, during that war, during the Bar Kokhba revolt. A lot of it started out, many of you who have been to Israel are familiar with the caves, where they, they, there was a lot of guerrilla warfare associated with caves. They were hiding in caves, but they, there was a major fortress called In Betar, which is really where the last stand took place in Betar. What's amazing is that in the 60s, there was, an actual, there was a find in a, in a cave near the, near the uh, Dead Sea of, of letters from the Bar Kokhba era, era, including a letter from Bar Kokhba himself asking for supplies for Sukkos. The, uh, for, for uh, Lulav and Esrog and Adasim and Arovos, the four species asking 
sending a messenger saying, please bring to the troops um, these supplies. So clearly they were a religious army. We're told that Rabbi Akiva, the greatest sage of the time, was a, as a, a supporter of what Bar Kokhba did at the beginning. Eventually Bar Kokhba, uh, various things occurred, including Bar Kokhba killing his own uncle, who was a great, very learned sage, and, um, he, uh, and, and the whole thing fell apart, and the city of Betar was destroyed. And again, it was a genocide. It's described as a genocide by Roman historians of Jews of the time. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed in, uh, in the city of Betar, and the fury of the Romans was such that they did not allow the Jews to be, the victims to be buried. And they, had, they, they laid out there for, for a couple of years, and miraculously were told, miraculously that the bodies did not decompose, even though they were out in the sun for a couple of years, and eventually they were given permission to, to bury them, and the rabbis instituted a blessing of Hatova Hametiv uh, from benching is as a result of that of that victory. So on, in this source sheet, I included some traditional Jewish sources which parallel the, uh, the Roman sources. Um, I'm not going to get into them right now, but it's just interesting to see that, that a lot of the Torah that we learn, whether it's, um, whether it's the, the custom of mourning during the nine days, for example, not to eat meat during the nine days. Actually, there's one very important source, which I think is a very good way of, of tying this all up. Um, on, the, on the third to last page, just beneath the Arch of Titus. You'll see a source, which I think is very important. So the rabbis taught, I'll say it outside, the rabbis taught that when the temple was destroyed for the second time, the second temple was destroyed, large numbers of Jews became ascetics, meaning they decided they, how could they ever indulge in physical pleasure after the temple of God was destroyed? They couldn't do it. And so they promised to neither eat meat nor drink wine ever. They said, we are in such a state of pain over the destruction of the temple, we're never going to eat meat or drink wine. So Rabbi Yoshua was a rabbi. He got in a conversation with them and he said, my sons, why do you not eat meat or drink wine? They said, how can we eat flesh? How can we eat meat? Right? As you say in, in modern uh, society, it's a, it's a trigger. It triggers trauma from the times from when the temple existed. And it reminds us of the sacrifices that were brought on the altar. And we can't do it. And how can, we, how can we eat meat? And how can we drink wine? Because there's the libation of wine. They used to pour wine on the temple. And if we, we, can't, we can't drink wine for pleasure when we no longer can, can pour wine on the altar. Right? So Rabbi Yeshua said, he said to them, if that's true, he says, you know, he played along almost. He said, it's a great idea. You also shouldn't eat bread either. Because the meal offering that was brought in the temple was basically bread. And that has ceased. Right? And uh, they said, you know what? You're right. So, the, so then he said, um, uh, "Then he said we should not eat fruit either, right? Because there was the bikurim, the first fruit were brought. So they said, you know what? You're right. We shouldn't eat fruit either. Can't eat bread. Can't eat fruit either. Um, oh, so they said we'll we'll eat other fruits, fruits that were not part of the bikurim ceremony. He said, but you shouldn't be allowed to drink water because on Sukkot there was a famous celebration of the drawing of the water and the pouring of the water, and so you would never, you shouldn't be allowed to drink water either." So they couldn't respond, because what are they going to do? They have to eat and drink something. So he said, my sons, come and listen to me. This is a very fundamental lesson. He says, not to mourn at all is impossible, because, of course, we're Jews, and we're in tremendous pain over what happened, right? Because the blow has fallen. To mourn too much is also impossible, right? And so the sages have decreed certain ways of mourning, and we should comply with those, <coughs> those decrees, but we shouldn't do more. What are they? When a person builds a home... When a person builds a home, you should leave a little section that's bare, that's not plastered, right? As a sign of mourning from Jerusalem. And when a person prepares a full course banquet, if there's a way to 
to take something out that people would otherwise expect as a sign of mourning, they should do that too. And if a woman is planning on putting on all of her jewelry for a particular event, she should leave one of them off. So she has a personal remembrance, right? And why? Because as we took an oath after the destruction of the first temple, we took an oath which appears on Tehillim in Psalm 137. If I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget, and let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I prefer, right, if I don't prefer Jerusalem and my chief joy, and of course, at, uh, at any time when Jews are happy, we're always remembering Jerusalem. The most obvious example is at a Jewish wedding, when we break the glass as a sign of mourning, and not everyone knows this, but before the groom goes to the chuppah, um, most communities have a custom that ash is put on his forehead to remember uh, uh, Jerusalem. And any time, any time that we're happy, it's um, to keep in mind the um, Jerusalem. The coin just beneath that quote is actually a coin minted during the Bar Kokhba revolt. During the, the three years that Bar Kokhba had revolted, this coin on the left is an, is an actual image of the temple. They knew what the Beis HaMikdash looked like. It was only 50 years earlier, 60 years earlier. Um, and um, and the, the Hebrew, it's, it's a different type of Hebrew than what we're used to. Um, it's called Ketab Ivri. He, um, the Hebrew says, for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so from that point on, from the year 135 until today, the year 135 was the last time there was a Jewish, any type of Jewish sovereignty, any type of Jewish organized military um, framework um, um, up until this uh, last century. And um, that's it. So that's what we do now. We mourn, we mourn Jerusalem. And, uh, of course, Sunday is, the, uh, is really the, uh, the, the ultimate uh, day of mourning for the Jewish people. And those of you, I'm sure you all know that this Sunday... Um, Rabbi Stephen Weil from the Orthodox Union will be leading a, inter, a broadcast which will be uh, shown around the world um, based, based right here where he's going to be talking um, he, every year he talks about another manifestation of the temple's destruction and us being in exile and this year he's going to talk about files that were recently declassified from the Eichmann trial which sheds light on the Holocaust which is another manifestation of the Jewish people being in exile and not, and not in their land so that is all. I apologize if I had to rush uh, towards the end, but I think we covered most of it. Yes? This is not related to that, but I mean, to Tishba. Because it's a Nejkla, are there no restrictions on Monday? That is correct. Yeah, typically the custom is to wait <coughs> until the day after the 9th of Av, until the 10th of Av, to, to start uh, to get haircuts and whatever else. Uh, so most of the restrictions um, are lifted immediately upon uh, three stars emerging on Sunday night. Um, but you should check the well, the show will send out some laws. You could just double check. There are I think there might be a couple that that do stick around until the next day. Okay. Any other questions? Thank you. Thank you all for coming out. Appreciate it. The late hour. Yes, you have a question. You know those, um, those examples you gave about having reservation with the food that you serve, or yeah. not wear all the all the jewelry. Like, mm-hmm. That's all the time in the. World? Yes, all the time. Correct. That's all the time. Yeah. This year it's Nilchai. The 9th of Av is technically Shabbos. It's pushed off to Sunday. Yeah. He will be here in person, live, in the flesh. Yes, he will be here in the main shul, broadcasted to between 30 and 40,000 people. That's what they're estimating. We'll be tuned in. Um, so, so um, yeah, you might be uh, famous. Become legends in our own mind. Yeah. Thank you, Rabbi. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you.
Nice to see you too. Just stop this recording. Off to you. Thanks for coming out. Stop. Thank you very much. Thank you.